I'm Sean Borstrock, and on today's episode of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast, I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Richard Sudworth. Richard was appointed as the new Secretary for Interreligious Affairs to the Archbishop of Canterbury and National Interreligious Affairs Advisor for the Church of England in 2018. The post resources the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England in relating to the great world faiths nationally and internationally, as well as at local parish level. He advises the Archbishop on his engagement with other religious communities, both nationally and internationally, and resources the Archbishop and the Church of England on interreligious relations and develops a national strategy for mission and ministry in multi-religious contexts. Richard, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Great. Thank you for the welcome, Sean. Good to see you. And you. And nobody else is seeing us, of course. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yes. I wanted to start, as I always do, this is my kind of opening gambit, just to ask you about yourself and what it is you do uh, for work. Sure. Well, I, I'm a priest in the Church of England, um, so have a background in the kind of traditional parish ministry. Um, but my current role is national advisor to the Church of England on interreligious relations. And as part of that, I'm advisor to the Archbishop of Canterbury. So um, it involves lots of things, but it, it primarily really is about um, working with leaders of other faith traditions. And so does that, I mean, how does that work? Gosh, well, I mean, it works in, in lots of different ways. So uh, I guess the obvious and easiest thing to imagine is there are things that we can do together. So um, we speak um, in a week that's just gone with COP26 and a whole lot of faith leaders were up in Glasgow that didn't kind of come out of thin air. Um, they're building relationships. There's a concerted sense of how we can work together as religious traditions um, to combat climate change. So that's just one ex example. Oh, that, and that's quite amazing because I suppose one doesn't always think of religions coming together. No, um, and and it would be very easy for some, I think, to imagine there's a bit of a kind of crisis management uh, when it comes to other faiths. How do we stop us falling out? Uh, sometimes that's needed, um, and uh, obviously there are, there can be issues of racism and exclusion that we need to address together. Um, but actually, for the most part, it's it's how we can learn uh, to live better together, sometimes to campaign for the common good and do constructive stuff. And that's at the very local and national and international. Mm. I mean, interesting that you mentioned COP26 and that religions are coming together to fight climate change. How, how, has that, how does that come about? Because again, one wouldn't expect, you know, faith to come together within that forum? Basically, um, at every level of, of life, again, local, national, international, if we want to get some major change done, um, we need to work with religious people. So first and foremost, just being really pragmatic, um, you know, three quarters of the world will call themselves religious. So if you want to sort out world poverty, uh, climate change, you've got to understand religions and you have to work with them. Um, and climate change, you know, here in the UK, religious leaders and communities are, are at the forefront of that. It's a whole scheme of eco churches, eco synagogues, eco mosques. Um, there's a whole load of lobbying and 
kind of lifestyle work that various Christian groups uh, are involved in. So, yeah, it's part of who we are. So what then, I mean, you've spoken a bit about um, some of, of what you do. What is the most exciting thing about what it is you do? Gosh, um, I, mean, I, I get to meet some really interesting people um, and, you know, particularly religious leaders from around the world um, that meet with the Archbishop. It's, that's exciting and fascinating when some of the challenges and opportunities really are kind of global. And I think, um, and going back to my kind of priest experience in a local church, working with other faith groups, sometimes the, the real exciting stuff is when you see genuine change and learning, um, people discovering that, well, most often it's not as enemies, but it's as communities that are suspicious of, of each other. And what I really love is to see, particularly my own community, Christians, discovering that they can be really good neighbours with people that believe some quite different things. That's that's the real deal for me. Yeah. And that's an amazing thought, isn't it? To think that people, you know, regardless of where they're coming from, can come together. Yeah. And thinking about the complexity of this world we live in, what inspires you? Gosh, what inspires me? Um, I mean, I, I have to kind of give a really religious answer, to be honest. Um, I mean, you know, the, the heart of my own faith is is Jesus Christ, a belief, conviction that he is mysteriously God on earth um, and in his life, death and resurrection gives us hope. And what inspires me is holding on to that hope that actually there's, there's a good future and a good purpose for us. Um, and that, that kind of underlies everything, And but it's a bit of a pious kind of churchy answer but i can't give anything else as we're talking you know on the in pursuit of luxury podcast i wanted to explore this idea of materialism and religiousness i appreciate the complexity of the subject but i wondered what your thoughts were or what your thoughts are about this idea of religiousness and materialism yeah okay um i mean we're probably working with a whole range of definitions here so um I mean, I, I, I'm always suspicious of isms. So, any, that's a good start. <laughs> any ism, I kind of come out in a bit of a rash. Um, and materialism is probably one of the biggest rashes I, I, I might have. So, I, I guess materialism, the, the love of stuff above all else, um, then certainly my Christian faith. And um, I'd probably argue the vast majority of religious traditions would want to challenge. Um, but the, the material as good, stuff as part of life, um, you know, the heart of the Christian tradition would say, yeah, absolutely, you know, the, the, whether it's um, the brick and mortar of, of housing, the creative arts, um, food that's made, this is all good stuff. And, and at the heart of the Christian kind of celebration and worship is it's Holy Communion is a Eucharist where the stuff of bread and wine somehow is central. So, um, but but there's a kind of dark shadow in the Christian faith and in some other religious traditions that would want to shun the material. Um, and I guess when you start to think about luxury, I think many of our religious traditions hold a bit of a tension here, where 
we celebrate um, the luxurious, the the created, whilst also holding a, a bit more of a a kind of denial uh, mentality, um, and that you know both there there are shadows on both sides of that, but but the idea that let me how, how can I phrase this, but I think the idea that um, the heart of our life is not just utilitarian. It's not stuff merely to be used. I think is a really religious concept. So the concept of luxury, that there is something that is really special on top of the ordinary, is there at the heart of religious sensibility. And we see it in the kind of grandeur of cathedrals. Uh, we see it in, in the kind of drama that you get in many church service, services, even though some aspects of religiousness might want to play that down. So, you know, very typically in, in mosques, they're very simple and unadorned, but you still have beautiful calligraphy. You still have these gorgeous patterns in many of the classical Islamic architecture that is luxurious. Um, and it's not merely, life is not merely stuff to be used in a kind of utilitarian transactional way. But is there a connection between luxury and religion in the way in which religions um, portray themselves? So if I'm thinking about the Russian Orthodox Church, for example, mm -hmm. you know, you, met, you were talking about buildings. They are very opulent. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. could one make the connection of luxury even coming out of religion in, a, in one way or the other? I think that there's there's something in there, um, and I, I guess the religious dimension of luxury is that the the material thing, um, the element beyond beyond the everyday, beyond the simple kind of daily grind, is always pointing to something else. Um, now. I, I think commonly and particularly in the West, luxury does link with materialism and it's just stuff for the sake of stuff, which for me is very irreligious. But the, what what we may have inherited in, in that um, kind of religious um, origins of luxury is actually things that point to something else. What might they be pointing to? Well, go back to your Russian Orthodox Church and all the icons, um, and you know the gold leaf of those icons. You know, there are Christians and other religious groups that may look in on that out from outside that tradition and think, "Oh, wow, they're worshiping pictures, um, or they're worshiping the building." No, that's not that's not it. In in the Rus Russian Orthodox tradition, they glorious icons and i love icons in fact you might be able to see one behind me in my my study um icons are, are windows into god um you don't look at the icon as the end point but they're a little indicator of something else the transcendence of the very presence of god 
when you think about these icons and um, you go to a temple, for example, whether it's in Japan or in India, I mean, it's you, they are filled with icons. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you can buy souvenirs of icons or you could go into a furniture shop and buy an icon. Yeah. The connotations are different, but the physical thing is the same. Yeah. Yes and no. I, I've got a number of icons in my house. I, I'm not orthodox by tradition, but the, there are lots of borrowings across our traditions and uh, echoes and resonances uh, that, that, that we'll share. Um, and I, I've got some that are prints and they're kind of cheap copies and they remind me of a place. Um, and, you know, they're a, a little helpful kind of prompt to prayer. Um, my most precious icons have been painted by iconographers who spend months praying and they're skilled and there is a whole story behind what they do. Um, now, that, that for me is an epitome, to use your word, of luxury because they dedicated their lives to this particular craft. And there's a transcendence in what they produce that's very special. I'm like, again, completely off script. So I wonder then, you know, you're talking about this perfection of craft. If, <laughs> I mean, this is just me verbalizing what I'm thinking. If craftsmen see what they do in that way, you know, craftsmen of objects, you know, the Takumi in Japan, for example, mm -hmm. I wonder if they appreciate their craft in that, in a religious way. I do think there is, there is a religious sensibility behind people of really dedicated craft, wh whether they would want to count themselves as religious or not. That there, there is, they bring themselves and their story to it, and I, and I think in the great works of art we see that there, there is a, a dedicated life and story that's invested in in this that's that's offered to us. And in all great works of art, which, you know, I, I think has this religious impulse, it's a story that begs the viewer or the receiver to make their own, which is a very religious thing. You know, here's this, here's this painting, here's this statue, here's this piece of furniture even. Um, you w work with this story that I've invested in to carry on yourself. And I see that happening in, in our worship services. I'm just thinking about these big luxury brands. You know, their story is what sells the product, albeit it's a very different kind of story. Indeed, indeed. And yeah, and, and I think part of the, the irony, um, I mean, let, let's use, use the word of, of branding. Um, the stories that the big fashion houses and conglomerates use and want to put into their branding and you know that there is a transcendence that they're all seeking in that isn't there you know they they your archetypal big brands the apples of this world want you to fall in love with their product and ultimately when when i talk about luxury and the religious impulse and the christian faith and w without wanting to sound, sound a bit weird, that there is something of love and relationship to God in a in a visceral 
encounter that's more more than just the thing and and our even our companies are seeking that in their branding you know often you read about the appropriation of luxury brands which often causes uproar you know many years ago i think john galliano used um the hasidic um that's Jews right. as yes. his inspiration i mean what do you th- what do you think of that appropriation I, it's a hot topic isn't it um <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i know i, I just uh, yeah. i just thought of it when you were talking yeah i mean i you know the, there'll be post-colonial theorists that will want to say hey th- this is out of order it's exploitative um and i really get that um and at the end of the day, and I, I guess as a as a professional religious person, I'm bound to say that the transcendent religious instincts that have endeavoured to be sold alongside some of our products will always fail to deliver, and they'll always promise something that they can never fully uh, satisfy. Now that's that's my conviction as a religious person, but I think that's that's why so much of of our materialism and consumerism um, leads to addiction. What do you think about fashion as religion? I'm kind of sympathetic to that. I, in, a, in a sense, I, all I've said so far, I've, you know, I, I've talked to religious sensibility and religious instincts and how. We see that in so many different fora. Um, and I think for some people, fashion is religion, like football's a religion for some people. Um, and I, I do think we are wired to be religious. Now, I'm not saying that we're wired to be Christian or Muslim or Sikh or Hindu, whatever. But we are wired to something beyond ourselves, some transcendence. Um, I mean, St. Augustine, I'm, I'm going to pull out some big names now. St. <laughs> Augustine of Hippo, um, I mean, he, he, he talks of human beings basically being beings of desire. Fundamentally, to be human, you desire. And, and his famous kind of catchphrase um, was basically, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in God. Um, and I think fashion houses, our big, big multinationals know that. They're selling that desire. But I wonder if these big conglomerates see themselves as, you know, I know of course they're selling desire, but I wonder if they see themselves as these um, um, cathedrals. There's often the Cathedral of Consumption mentioned. But are they cathedrals of desire which they are perpetuating on, you know, the masses? Yeah, I, I do think that. But there's a, an American theologian that's written a, a quite a good book on this, and his opening chapter is is one of those nice little, kind of, quick surprising turns where he he basically describes a service of Christian worship, um, but without naming the building. And pulls a fast one at the end of the opener, and you realise you're in a shopping mall. But all the all the actions, the walking into this space um, with these objects of worship, and and you're, you're arriving there with lots of other people, and there are 
certain exchanges and there are certain people that are particularly trained to share and lead you in in, in the, the kind of experience um yeah he, he would sort of make this very neat parallel with cathedrals in as shopping centers and I, I i guess to some people they are mm. yeah. yeah it's amazing to think that you know people would think of a shopping experience in that way yeah um but i mean we probably know like i don't sound too condescending because you know i'm part of this as well hey you know this is the world we live in but you know we all know either the feeling in ourselves or at least people that will get that kick just from the experience of being there the shininess the newness the you know and and there are messages that, you know that we still don't fully understand all the well, I, I'm talking shopping malls, but actually what I probably should be talking about is the whole internet experience now. Mm. What's that doing to us neurologically in tapping into repeated prompts for desire in our search engine, engines and the like? I just wondered what you thought about this idea of space and the luxury of space. I know you touched upon cathedrals. Um, and the the space for prayer, but I was wondering what you thought about the luxury of space in terms of um, a place to contemplate, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really good question. Um, and and again, I I'll probably um, say a little bit more about um, how in worship and prayer and and the religious impulse that. You know, it, it it's more than transactional, more than just utilitarian. Um, and I, well, there's a, a quote from a, a well-known Scottish Roman Catholic theologian. He he talks about uh, pro- pro- provocatively. He talks about prayer being a waste of time, not a waste of time in the sense of it's pointless, but. And hence, it, you know, it, it's one of those eye-catching, how on earth could a Roman Catholic theologian say that? But he means it in the sense that you are not subject to our usual disciplines of diary and money and the confines of, well, this particular space, you know, my study, your study. Um and that somehow in that moment of transcendence, there's the wonderful luxury of not having to be or do anything. And I think that's why in our cathedrals, they're big. There's lots of waste of space <laughs> because it's not merely about how, how many people can we squish into here and file through the system you know you think of of those wonderful ornate statues and gargoyles that were built on the roofs of cathedral that no human being would ever see what a complete waste of space but that's part of worship yeah i'm thinking um if it is a waste of space (laughs) (laughs) in a good way (laughs) the space isn't the space it what creates the aura that enrobes you, I suppose, if that's the right word. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it's so grand. And that kind of, I suppose, is the comfort of being in that space because it's so big. Yes. That's, that's, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then all spaces are different. So I'm thinking about, you know, we referred earlier to a, um, you know, if it's a mosque, which is typically more, uh, typically simpler in its design. And then you think about um, a very elaborate church, Russian Orthodox church, or you think about um, St. Paul's, which is not as elaborate, or you go to the Mm -hmm. Vatican. I mean, they're all very different architectural styles. How how would you reconcile those experiences? I mean, they they ref- reflect the traditions, um, and there are huge differences there um, across. Well, it, even within the Christ- Christian tradition, so you know you can have some very very simple chapels that would never countenance paintings and statues, all the way to your uh, Sistine Chapel at, at Vatican City. Um, Another religious tradition, similarly huge diversity. But I, I do think within the heart of the religious sensibility is, is that instinct to not merely see the space that you're in for prayer and worship in bald, functional terms. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm I'm not not an architect, but you know that it, it's it's a debate there in in architecture, isn't it? You know, I, the, the space has got to work, it's got to be functional, it's got to meet the needs of what it's for. But actually, it's a poor building if that's all it does, and if you don't see beauty and those, you know, that this is this is the luxury. You don't you don't need a church. To have um, a, a painting or an icon or a stained glass window, but for me, it's a diminished space for worship. If the creative gifts that we have as humans are not directed towards pointing us beyond just this functional space, with all the ranges of elaborateness that you can have across that. This might be the right time to ask you about um, this experience of pleasure <laughs> being um, classified as luxury. Could the experience of pleasure be classified as luxury? Do you think? No, it ought not to be. I, I mean, I, but in answering that, I, I can't. We can't but acknowledge that there are swathes of the world where you know, if, if you're li- living under the threat of war, then you're going to struggle to find any pleasure if you're starving but the human condition ab- absolutely you know it is made for pleasure and, and obviously in all our religious traditions and the christian tradition it has is not immune to this has had those elements that have wanted to deny pleasure but actually at the heart of the christian tradition and i think in in mainstream religious traditions you know we have festivals we celebrate um and there's there's a rhythm to life where whilst there may be moments of the year, um, whether in the Jewish tradition, Yom Kippur, Christian tradition, Lent, where it's self-denial, it's it's self-examination and not necessarily pleasurable, but actually there are those punctuated moments where we come together and have a good knees up. Knees up. And, and we eat lots, and um, and that, that's kind of how we're made. 
and it's there at the heart of religious uh, gathering. You then have industry exploiting those traditions and exploiting those pleasures. So with Christmas, for example, or Easter, or Hanukkah, you know, eight gifts over over the eight days, um, and then depending, you know, the gifts are bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the same with Christmas. You know, you've got these luxury brands that, um, or all brands, not only luxury brands, who, you know, make an advent calendar that might cost, I don't know, 400 pounds, for example. <laughs> <laughs> There's an exploitation of that pleasure. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. And and that's where we go back to, you know, us, I think, as, as well, both responsible citizens and as properly human human beings need to be able to discern when a fast one is being pulled on us, where we're just being led by our noses in a consumerist way, our desires kind of pricks and it can't be delivered. And and when actually the celebrations, the gifts, the the big meal that we have with family points to and enables us to be thankful for family and friends, thankful for having got through another year uh, alive after COVID or uh, really grateful in my Christian tradition for the birth of Jesus and how how these things point to other goods rather than just the material thing in itself. That that for me is how how we use this stuff aright. If it's an end in itself, it's no good. And that's what makes the difference. It's not, you know, it's the after. It's not the yeah. Um, it was happening. Yeah, yeah. It's it's what happens afterwards. Um, you mentioned tradition earlier on, and again, what we see with luxury is, it in my view, um, the idea of tradition is which is what de- defines it. You know, having this tradition of the craftsmanship and having um, um, the skill. And those things are all based in tradition. And I wanted to get your take on, you know, within within the church, most of what you do is built on tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a way? Is there a way of kind of bringing those two types of tradition together? This traditional aspect of of craft and craftsmanship within luxury, and the traditional aspect of of faith. Does that make sense? Maybe if if, if I if this answers your question, um, I'll you give can it a reinterpret go. my question. I'll, I'll yeah. reinterpret it, but <laughs> perhaps in two different ways. So I I think on, on the one hand, you know, on, on in one dimension, the church has not always been good at celebrating craftspeople and artists. Um, we we have a long history of it. And you know the the great artists that whether it's Renaissance, Michelangelo, um, Raphael, composers like Bach, um, you know, great kind of Western tradition of craftspeople, artists have often been at the heart of church and worship and religious sensibility, and there are elements of that being recovered. And I think we need, I'm talking myself here, and the church needs to be better at receiving the gifts and the challenge of craftspeople. 
Um, but I, 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 I'm the I think the other stream of perhaps your question is is also just how we understand that creative process in society generally and for people of religion that there is, there is something beautiful and precious about the skill and craft of luxury and that there's a transcendence in there and and I'm I'm not sure we always appreciate that. So I, you know, I've I've come at this slightly sniffy about kind of branding luxury and how exploitative exploitative it can be. But there is a dimension of what it says to us about the human condition, our search for beauty, and wonderful fashion designers and artists point to that. I know we touched upon this already. You know. The craftsmanship in most, well, in all buildings is quite phenomenal. I'm thinking about, you know, embroiderers, you know, making vestments or thinking about the um, stonemasons working on the buildings, um, the sculptors, um, forgers, whoever they may be. Today, we don't think of them mm. as being luxury um, artif artif artifacts or luxury things. But in the past, they were always considered to be luxury because that's what you know. Yeah, these amazing yeah, yeah. things were. The, the problem with, with our word luxury, um, I, I, I think we we often think of luxury as, as something that can be easily dispensed with. We don't need it, and so so it's it's a double edged term, isn't it? So luxury, if, if understood as something that that is really transcendent, that, that goes beyond, that isn't merely functional, then in one sense, we can't afford to do without that, rather than it just being an add-on. And, you know, we, we, do, we do live in a, in a consumerist utilitarian age where designers and craftspeople are devalued, and the arts in our education, and I'm sure you face this, in our university system are seen as well you know that there aren't obvious jobs for industry there it's it's a bit of a luxury to support that course or this course well actually i don't think as a society we can do without these people and you know you're thinking again the crass people of luxury the sagrada familia barcelona on one level what a complete waste of time all the intricate little designs of all these knobbly bits of the Gaudi architecture. It's stunning. It's beautiful. It's, going back to my odd phrase, it's a wonderful waste of time. And we need these wonderful wastes of time. What we've seen over the past probably 20 years is an increase in the lack of appreciation of those sorts of things because we are um, confronted with this consuming world uh, in which we live, where it's about you know more rather than less, that makes the difference. And it's typified. You, you probably saw the story recently of um, the restaurant in London with the astronomical price for the the gold leaf steak. Now, for me, that that feels like the sort of the dark side of luxury. But then, then you know, I, I talked to friends who've been to a restaurant that shall remain nameless, where they were just raving about the drama 
and the smoke and whiz bangs of of this particular meal that they saved up for ages to go to as a special anniversary. And I think fantastic. It's luxurious, but it was a real celebration. It wasn't consumerist. It it was craftspeople in the kitchen delighting in the chemistry and the drama of this beautifully presented food. And I think there we have the conflict, don't we? Because that restaurant with the gold leaf steak, I mean, is not luxury. No, Um, no, no. But it, you know, it, that whole thing is perpetuated by the clientele. How do people think that that's okay when, you know, you look at the world around us and £700 would feed a family for weeks? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm very uncomfortable with things like that. We, we spoke briefly about sustainability and about COP26. I was wondering what your thoughts were on um, sustainability and um, sustainable practice because it's becoming increasingly important. It, it's, it's a moral challenge for all, all of us, and it is a moral question. How, how do we live well in this world today responsibly? And obviously, the inspiration for my moral challenge is, is me feeling counsel before God, but I, I think all of us will have different moral meters and accountabilities. And I think that... Part of the Christian tradition would would want to remind us that we all screw up all the time, and that we're part of systems that screw up. Um, so there's a, I think there's a healthy human sense that, as I reflect on what sustainability means for me, is that whatever I do, I'm I'm part of a system that screwed up. So I've got to do what I have to do with what I know. And in community, and I think there's something a communal responsibility too. What what does it mean in our neighbourhoods, in our political movements, in our religious communities um, that we can do together? And it, and it and it does mean voting politically for parties that will make more of a difference too. Am I allowed to say that kind of thing? You can say what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Is there a conflict between? the politics and the Church of England in their response to issues around sustainability? There is always a a healthy critical gap from the Church and the state. I mean, despite, you you named the Church of England, so, you know, we're an established church, so there's, there's an element within the governmental system, but part of, of that constitutional settlement is a critical difference. So, you know, the the state and any government won't and cannot dictate kind of doctrine to us. Um, but also there's a role we have to play to work with for the common good, working with government and all parties and all communities. And that's part of the story that we began with, working with other faiths too, and those of non-faith, that you know, we, there is stuff we can do together. And, and climate change... If there is one issue that requires us to see beyond our own communities and work together, this is it. Mm-hmm. It really is. This is this is one of those issues where broad coalitions are of, of the essence. And you know, church leaders have been with re- other religious leaders up in Glasgow lobbying, and you know, um, some months ago uh, that there's a, an interfaith statement. Um, 
we're, we're challenging commitments to all governments. Um, so, uh, yeah, th- there's work to be done. And, and again, part of the religious sensibility is to see beyond the merely political government of the day. And so, <laughs> do the the, the multi faith that uh, leaders that you've met, or the other faith leaders rather that you've met, are they all in agreement that there is this need to to address issues around? Yeah. Climate? Oh yeah. And you know, for, I, I don't want to overgeneralize on religious tradition. Whilst there are differences in how religious traditions see the world, see creation, I think what one of the common strands across the religious community is is that sense that um, you know we're, we're responsible to future generations. We're not we're not just here for me and my stuff for now, um, and and for many of us we're we have this world as, as stewards. It's not ours. We don't own it, and we're accountable to God. Um, so there's a whole load of kind of religious. Um, apparatus that impels us, demands us to be concerned about how we use this gift of creation well, because it's not just ours to play with and dispose of. That's reassuring to know that, you know, somebody um, somewhere is in agreement. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We've spoken about um, a bit about, you know, people consuming lots of stuff. I was wondering if you thought that by us encouraging consumption, you know, continuously encouraging consumption, we're creating this um, wasteful mentality in people. Yes, yes, well, I think we are. Um, even today on, on Facebook, um, uh, a, a friend, um, a female friend, had commented on uh, a well-known figure who... Um, was touted in the press as doing her bit for recycling by being seen in a public event um, in a jacket that she was seen in six weeks before. And my friend was sort of remarking, this isn't recycling, this is just wearing clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, we play into a system of consumerism where it's got to be the newest, the next, the best, and we end up wasting stuff. And, and well, you, you know this better than me, but the fashion industry I know is beginning to try and address this. You know, our, our collections that disappear without trace after a few months, um, and we're, we're all part of this. And yes, there's huge amounts of waste. The bad waste, not the good waste of a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but how do we then change? How do we change people's behaviour? How do you encourage people to consume less? I mean, I'm just thinking about you know the, the 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 past eighteen months or so. I mean, there weren't opportunities to go out shopping, but mm. it seems that people have forgotten that during the past eighteen months they didn't actually need twenty five pairs of <laughs> shoes, for example. <laughs> Because the shops are busy again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I have a a friend, and she was saying that, you know, it's very difficult for fashion to become fully sustainable because they need people to buy their goods. So I was just wondering if you had thoughts about how do we change people's behavior? 
and and this is where we're holding stuff in intention, aren't we? Because you know what what I'm not advocating is a kind of hair shirt mentality. Because I you know also want to advocate celebration and the you know that special dress, that special suit, or whatever it may be. Because that's there's something human about that. Um, but I think we all know. And again, going back to that gold leaf state, you know, we all know when it there's just obscene waste. We can we can make a difference there. So, you know, there are I, I know increasingly there are a, a sort of uh, audits published by companies, and if they're not by uh, independent scrutineers, scrutineers, um, well, let's not buy from those companies that obscenely waste their clothes. Um, and going back to the whole crafts people tradition um i i'm really conscious um these days of thinking well let me buy less but buy better you know that the kind of shoes that you get resold every few years because they're just brilliant now they're more expensive or the um brilliant tweed jacket that just lasts for 30 odd years and you know that so now that may seem like a luxury and a, a terrible middle class thing for me to talk about, but but actually let's recover the really well made stuff that lasts a long time. You know, a story that I often I, and I can't imagine how many I can't even recall how many times I've said this on the podcast to other uh, guests I've spoken to is that Olga Baluti, who from the Baluti family, there are were traditionally a cobbler and i spoke to her and she said the thing about shoes is that you ne you very seldom should have to buy new shoes hmm. because your shoes should always be able to be resold or fixed up and she said if you're getting married you never wear a pair of new shoes at the wedding you wear your oldest pair that has been polished yeah. <laughs> and that's an amazing story from somebody who sells shoes yeah, 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 and that's exactly what you're saying. You know, it's about quality and um, something being able to last for a very long time. I wanted to end, uh, Richard, on with our. I wanted to end our chat as I always do with um, all my guests and ask you what your luxury is. It feels like a bit of a desert island disc question, that doesn't it? You know, <laughs> it what, is. <laughs> what, what would you take with you as your luxury? Yes. Um, can I have two? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, you're being a, a lot more lenient than Desert Island Discs. Um, I I like a really nice malt whiskey, um, okay. a really good one, um, good uh, Speyside malt whiskey. Um, but a, a luxury that, uh, as a family, we don't have many of, but have enjoyed having um, is some original art in our house. It's just really special to us. Um, so we've got a few paintings that are originals, and and that's just really special, um, and something that I I particularly enjoy and value, and will be with me forever. Yeah. And what artist, if I may ask? Well, I, I'm going to name drop one because it, it's a signed um, limited edition print of a Howard Hodgkin, um, who I just love his work. And I've just got this small sort of cut out paper uh, sign print and uh, probably my favorite. 
Well, that's amazing. A glass of whiskey while you're contemplating the piece of art. Absolutely. Richard Sudworth, thank you so much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thanks for chatting to me. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books. And thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.